Merry Christmas. There is an interesting thing about Christmas, in addition to the fact that it's still occurring now, during our 12 days of Christmas, which are not complete until Epiphany. The curious thing is that with the secularization of the Christmas season, thereby shifting Christmas to everything occurring before the day of Christmas, while we are supposed to be observing Advent, the songs related to the entire collection of seasons all related to Christmas are lumped together as Christmas carols. For example, before I became aware of the liturgical calendar, I would say that my two favorite Christmas carols were O Come, O Come, Emmanuel and We Three Kings. Now, however, I recognize O Come, O Come, Emmanuel is an Advent hymn. This almost chanted and somber song looks for the coming of the promise of God, the coming of the Messiah, the Christ, for the deliverance of God's people. And at the end, at the opposite side of the spectrum, We Three Kings is a song for Epiphany Tide. Epiphany Tide, or the season of Epiphany, is what follows Christmas and gives us our readings from passages that reveal or give vision to, a.k.a. epiphanies, the identity of Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah. The arrival of the Magi, or the three kings, but Magi, meaning wise men, is a more accurate description and term for them, who bow down to worship Jesus, is a vision of Jesus' identity. It is an epiphany. And the passage from the Gospel, according to the second chapter of Matthew, describing the arrival of the Magi in Bethlehem, is our first Epiphany-tide Gospel reading and is assigned to the 6th of January, the Feast of Epiphany. But for the sake of liturgical readings and our Sunday observances, we have the freedom to move the Epiphany readings to the Sunday prior to Epiphany, when it occurs during the week, and that is Today, and that is how we arrive where we are this morning, the second Sunday of Christmas, and at the same time highlighting the Feast of Epiphany. I guess today, We Three Kings is truly both a Christmas carol and an Epiphany hymn. Let us look at this passage and consider what it can mean for us today. First, I feel a bit duty-bound to cover a few basic facts of the passage that are either commonly misunderstood or will add to the meaning and our understanding and application of the passage. The first is a question of when this happened. In theory, it happened in the year one, and that's if we traced our modern calendar back far enough. The trouble with that theory is that the current calendar at the time of its creation was basically a best estimate at the time and ended up missing a few years in the process. Since the creation of the calendar, scholars have been able to determine, based on the facts that are described both in the Bible and other historical information, such as the dating of the rule of the brutal King Herod, among other facts, that the birth of Jesus is at least as early as 3 B.C. The second interesting bit of information is brought to us from Professor Michael Molnar. He's a professor of astronomy at Rutgers University. 
And Dr. Moore. Molnar has done an in-depth study of the constellations and their meaning to the people who would be watching, the Magi primarily, in comparison to other events of the era. Dr. Molnar convincingly argues that the birth of Jesus occurred in 6 BC, and many Bible scholars and other historians agree with his position. Now, regardless of which is accurate, we know that Jesus was born from anywhere from three to six years before when we've traditionally thought. The result is that rather than being 33, Jesus was between 36 and 39 when he was crucified. The next bit of information is connected to Matthew's description of this event is that the Magi found Jesus in the house. Many have taken this, combined with St. Luke's description of Jesus being laid in a manger, to mean that he was already older and that Mary and Joseph had decided for some reason to stay in Nazareth for an extended period of time after the birth of Jesus, assuming that it had occurred in some, bar, some barn somewhere else within the town limits. The reality is that Mary and Joseph were in the house all along. The word that is translated in by the modern translators of Luke as in there was no room in the inn, is translated elsewhere in the New Testament as upper room, as when Jesus and the disciples had the Last Supper in the upper room. The upper room was where the family was gathered and lived. The lower room, the ground floor, is where animals were brought in for protection during the night. With all the family in Bethlehem for the census, there was no room in the upper room. There was no room in the inn, the place where the people slept, especially considering the special needs of a mother about to give birth. So space was cleared for Joseph and Mary and the soon-to-be-born Jesus downstairs in what functioned as a stable for the family's animals. The entire matter is quite simple when you understand the customs of the time there is no reason to, as some have done, create elaborate stories of how it would have taken years for the Magi to arrive when a person can walk across the entire region in a matter of weeks, a month or so at the most. Now, with a newborn Jesus in the house during the year somewhere between 3 and 6 BC, which is the, is the time of the rule of the brutal King Herod, we are ready to consider what the passage can tell us today. Our three wise men, our magi, travel from the east and pass through Jerusalem, asking about the newborn king. This seems a reasonable thing to do. Jerusalem is the capital city, and matters of royalty could be assumed to be recorded there. So they ask, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We've seen his star rise in the east. Professor Molnar goes into great detail in the book, The Star of Bethlehem, The Legacy of the Magi. What that comment packs with it as to certain astrological signs, their meaning, and what we can expect that the Magi saw, which caught their attention. And I recommend the book to you as an interesting study. In our biblical text, we see a few things that are happening there in Jerusalem. First, the brutal King Herod is troubled. There appears to be someone that's going to rise to his throne. He gathers information from the scribes and the priests about where their Messiah was to be born. He asks for more details from the Magi. 
about the star, and then he attempts to deceive the Magi by asking them to come back and report Jesus' location so that he could he too could go and worship the newborn king when in reality he only wanted to destroy his perceived competition. The Magi then proceed to Bethlehem to find Jesus with his mother, the Blessed Virgin Mary, and they bow down to worship him. When doing so, the Magi present Jesus with three distinct gifts. The first is gold, a royal tribute. The second is frankincense, an incense used in the worship of deity. The third is myrrh, a spice used for embalming the dead. In the three gifts from which we gain the tradition of there being three magi, we see Jesus recognized as a king who is God who will die for his people. A vision of, an epiphany of, the truth of the Messiah, the Christ. A message from the earliest days of Jesus' incarnate life on earth. The world may not recognize it yet, but those who are wise see this baby as much more than an infant sleeping in a manger. The world has just been given a king like no other. The world has just been given a king who is God. The world has just been given a king who is God, who unlike any other king, unlike any other God, a king who is God, who will die for his people. This is the greatest counter-narrative ever. People tend to compete with each other. Who is going to rise to the top? Kings, most especially, do not tolerate the presence of those who might make a claim to the throne. And kingships, especially then, were violently defended, even against other family members. This is brutally clear in the brutal reign of the Roman empires, the local emperors, the local kings, and governors. The Caesars, the entire string of them, the Caesars regularly killed their own family members to protect themselves and their rule against those who were killing their own family members. They're all in the same family, trying to make it to the top and take over the rule of the empire. The brutal King Herod was nothing more than the local extension of that murderous method of Roman rule. Herod, who is now feeling his rule threatened by the baby Jesus. And the so-called gods of Roman mythology, they were believed to be constantly fighting with each other and sometimes trying to destroy each other. But here in Bethlehem, in Jesus, we have a vision, an epiphany of a different kind of person, a different kind of king, a different kind of God. In Bethlehem, in Jesus, the world has just been given a king who is God, unlike any other king, unlike any other God. Jesus, a king who is God, who will die for his people. In the Magi who come from foreign lands, recognizing Jesus as the King, who is God, who will die for his people, we see that the grace of God, the mercy of God, the gospel of redemption through Jesus is a message for all the people of the world and not only for the Jews. And something important for us to especially remember today, we see Jesus 
the Prince of Peace, coming as the King who is God, who will die for his people in the most humble possible way. Jesus is born to the back in the backwater town of Bethlehem. Jesus is born to a family of modest means. And Jesus is born in a time and a land that will not tolerate him and even as an infant will actively seek to kill him. Jesus stands as a stark contrast to the brutal King Herod and the murderous Caesars Herod represented. Jesus' birth, God's willingness to subject himself to becoming fully human like us, reverses the common understanding that power rests on force. That the people, the rulers of society and the world, even today in the world around us, may use violence to get their way, but that is not true power. That is the Caesars being afraid of their own family members. That is Herod being afraid of a baby. That is Napoleon Bonaparte reportedly saying, Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I have founded empires, but on what did we rest the creation of our genius? Upon force. Jesus Christ found his empire on love, and at this hour millions of men would die for him. I marvel that whereas the ambitious dreams of myself, Caesar, and Alexander should have vanished into thin air, Jesus should be able to stretch his hand across the centuries and control the destinies of men and nations. I know men, and I tell you Jesus is more than a man. Comparison is impossible between him and other human beings who ever lived because he is the Son of God. In the Epiphany of the Magi, we see that unlike every ruler before Jesus and every ruler since Jesus, Jesus, the King who is God, who will die for his people, will reign through the power of peace forever and ever. Let us all swear our allegiance to the Prince of Peace. Amen.